0: 21, Burley Fisher's fifth and a half birthday. Some of you have already heard this story. Um, We celebrated our fifth birthday in February, in lockdown, without any of you. And without being able to celebrate the brilliant books that were being published this year, so we thought, why not have a festival? And we had no idea whether people would come, but you came. So thank you all for being here, and thank you to our fantastic speakers and chair, and thank you to all of the team at St. Peter de Beauvoir. Um, We're so lucky to be here, and thank you especially to Julie, Debbie, and Paul, who have answered all our questions. We also wanna thank the de Beauvoir Association. If you haven't had a chance to visit the cafe yet, they have tea, coffee, and homemade cakes, And they're raising funds with those for the De Beauvoir Welcomes Refugees Organization. So please do give generously. I also want to thank Yusuf Gojikian here, who is our BSL interpreter today from Link Hearing. And I want to thank Dan and Ant, who will be turning this event into a podcast. And that's been made possible by the Booksellers Association BA COVID Recovery Project, because that's what this is. We're recovering. We're bringing us as readers and writers back together. Um, I'm going to say a quick word about our chair for this event on New Fiction, Real London's, and then I will hand over to him. I also want to say thank you to our volunteers who um, are making sure everyone gets in and knows where everything is. So thank you to all of them. And a huge thank you to Will Harris, who is a poet and critic from London. He's the author of the critically acclaimed Mixed Race Superman and All of This is Implied, and winner of the LRB, poetry bookshop, LRB Bookshop Poetry Pick for the best pamphlet. Rendang, his debut full-length collection won the Forward Felix Dennis Prize for best first collection, and was also shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry 2020 and longlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and Dylan Thomas Prize. And he's published with The Guardian, The London Review of Books, Granta, The Poetry Review, The White Review, and many others. And Will's book, along with books by T.J. Jin, Frankie Mirren, and Guiego Odibanjo, are all available downstairs in the cafe, and they will be signing books after you've had a chance to hear them read and ask your questions. So please do come downstairs after this event. Um, I, once when we planned this event to talk about London's, I knew that I wanted to ask Will to chair it because throughout lockdown, when I thought about London, I thought about poems like Half Got Out in his collection, Rendang. And so this is a hybrid panel of poets and novelists. And I think we'll be talking about all the ways to tell the stories of our city. So thank you, Will, for chairing. Are you ready to go? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm really excited about this. Um, I just swallowed loads of sparkling water as well. So I might hiccup a lot. Um, Just (laughs) don't be scared. Um, So OK, this is going to be the structure of the um, of the event, so I'm going to introduce our really exciting, multi-talented writers, and then they're going to do a short reading, about four to five minutes. Kind of feel like you want the the full. I don't know. Is it normal to, to go into this much detail? Anyway, I'm going to do it. Okay, they're going to talk for four to five minutes in this order: It'll be Boyega, Frankie, T.J., and then we're going to have a chat, and then there'll be a and A. And then we're gonna close with uh, three short readings. And there are gonna be some other exciting elements. Um, Each of them will have an object of some kind. And I might also share an object. I haven't decided what yet. Um, And yeah, so if you have a question, be like thinking about it during the readings. And yeah, I'm not gonna say too much. Okay, so a little bit about the writers. Boyega Odabanjo was born and raised in East London. He's the author of While I Yet Live and Auntie Uncle Poems, and a winner of an Eric Gregory Award from the Society of Authors. TJ Jin is part of the Design Yourself Collective based in the Barbican exploring technology and what it means to be human. Her debut novel is Keeping the House, and she is a friend of Boyega. (laughs) Hopefully, (laughs) I feel like that that kind of... Comes across as quite pointed. <laughs> like, claiming Boyega. i like to think we're all friends here. we <laughs> um, Maybe we can talk about that later. Bring that, bring that in. And Frankie Mirren is a sex worker and activist with two sex work collectives, Swarm and ECP. Her novel, The Service, is based on the years she's spent in and out of the sex industry. Um, I... Yeah, I'm not going to say anything more. I think it's just nicer to let them, you know, come at you. All right. Uh, so I'm going to go Boyega, Frankie, TJ.
2: OK. Hello, bonjour. <coughs> I'm going to read three poems, the first of which is called "Dorston Lane, which is around the corner and where I grew up. Dawston Lane, we huddled by the upstairs window face the noise, a street song kettled and screeching its own broken yes. We could watch it on the TV, but do not trust the definition of its bodies. Still learning to move to this noise that scratches on them, skipping. So we look, my dad is first to turn. He steps outside and squats on the roof of his car, throwing shiny objects onto the floor, distracting those who might approach him. My sister follows with a bucket and a sponge. She washes the road of all its glass and its blood, tells us that it is her glass and her blood, refuses help. My brother is stapling himself to the street signs. My sister is washing his blood, which is her blood also. My brother has stretched himself so wide around the noise and is checking everybody's papers as they enter. My mother stands on the corner of every road. In her arms is a book of names that she has given and must give to the noise. I stand behind her, holding her hand, waiting my turn. The noise is blurred big, and still I am not knowing how to move. Next poem I'm going to read is called Saturday, and it's about Saturdays. (coughs) It's only an hour till last call and I want to run there with you. On the news, it's, no, don't go anywhere. And I'm law-abiding, but also predisposed. Several things could happen here. I could tell you my story, you yours. We could explore the city, say, hello, Mr Officer. We're just walking, thank you. Good day to you also. And that would be that. The girl, her face in the posters. We might never have to learn her name. Everyone could make it home before the papers are out, we could have a lovely time, tick all the boxes, phone all the numbers, Charlie Charles wouldn't pick up. He said he was getting out to pursue art, and he has the guy your cousin knows who drives the Merc. He says, a drought's coming. I say, yeah, bro, our relationship with the ocean is unsustainable. He knows, I know, he meant the streets and doesn't laugh. I don't mind. This is how tonight is supposed to go. Your friends say I'm funny. The streets flood, the ocean floods. We know the names of all the girls. They tell us themselves. We go everywhere and no one stops us. My man picks up, we go. And this last poem for now is called Babel. Everybody going gone. People packed, went outskirts and elsewhere. Sound been bagged. Aerial come down, music plucked from sky and scattered. Tower come down, lives in matted woven nylon zipped. Uncle, cousin gone, base in backpacks, trunk rattle hushed. Couldn't no centre ever hold all that racket, no. Woman on the 67 bus with the stories, she's gone. Estate scrubbed clean of its grimy self, loiter song gagged. Gap toothed whistle no more, song not ever, pastor on the corner mistakes empty for heaven, communion run empty, no two or more gathered, nobody's here, only ghosts and memory holding this nothing and nobody place up. Chill.
3: Hey, um can everyone hear me? I'm really deaf and I so hate not being able to hear, so yeah, you can, cool. Um, so yeah, my book is called The Service and it's about sex work in London. Um, it's told from three different points of view, um, two sex workers and a swarthy journalist. Um, so I'm going to read from, this is... One of a scene uh, from the character, Laurie, she's a sex worker. It's towards the end of the book, and sex workers have occupied a church. It's so cool to do this event in a church. But, um, I love the idea of, like, halls in a church. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> she hasn't yes, called you whores. It's a compliment. Um, okay, so she's walking through Soho to buy some food for the occupation. So, the summer is baking, end of days hot and people are drinking outside with sweat patches on their backs. A suited man with a dog on his knees sips white wine and chats on his phone. A group of women fall about over a joke. A couple kiss outside a pub, bright cocktails on a tiny table. Laurie smells coffee, hears laughter from the open windows of an art gallery. Back in 2013, police descended on these streets like they were going after ISIS. Laurie wasn't there, but it's no leap to feel the women's terror as armed pigs stormed the flats, boots on the stairs, 40 cops alone pouring into one walk-up in riot gear for the love of fuck, the doors splintering like matchsticks, even the toughest maids for a moment as helpless as schoolgirls. They smashed everything in the flat, Laurie's mate told her. They smashed open the safe and took our money, nearly 500 quid, she never got back. They dragged me onto the street in my underwear, and all of it documented by London's Evening Standard, which slavered over the salacious story, the terrified women with their hands over their faces, the heroic cops. With glee, the Daily Mail published a feast of images, sex workers' faces barely blurred. These tainted women, after all, were deserving of reader's scorn. And in the end, so many flats closed down, women arrested, deported, a conviction for a penknife, and all for what? They're nearly at the supermarket, but the pavement's blocked by a queue of people waiting at the door of a restaurant. White-shirted waiters with iPads, sign-in well-dressed customers, hand out flutes of champagne. There's a rainbow flag in the window. With a safe Soho campaign lot, not up in arms, Grace asks when all that shit went down. The raids were right round the corner from Compton Street, right? Surely the gay bars would have been onside. Understood the violence. Yes, yeah, says Laurie, you'd think. They wanted to save the arthouse cinemas, Laurie's friend had told her, the hookers, not so much. Still, as they're about to go into the, res- uh, the supermarket, two men appear in a restaurant window. Between them, they hoist up a sign and attach it next to a rainbow flag. We support the sex worker's occupation. Decrim Soho. Grace salutes them. Go on, boys. They buy sliced bread, peanut butter, crisps, biscuits, bottles of water. Grace has bought an old-lady shopping trolley tartan with wheels. And When Laurie laughs, Grace Grace says, No way, these things are useful. Get a check of yourself. They pile it with food. Walking back to the church, Grace taps into Laurie's mood. You're thinking about the raids, I can tell. She sighs. Never-ending, she says. In Ireland, same as here, what with the nuns who'd see you burn in hell and the rebranded Magdalene laundry organisations who'd rescue every hooker and set them to toil in a workhouse, if only they could. And that's before you get started on the journalists, who shred you limb from limb. Oh, and not to forget the politicians. They'd give the nuns a run for their money when it comes to viciousness. Grace tosses her hair. She's been called a pimp, a panderer, a liar, a witch. She's taking a case against the new law to the European Court of Human Rights. Sure, though, she shrugs, it's all grand. Grace tells Laurie about the sex shop-themed restaurant round the corner. I went in for a dildo and they shoved a tasting menu in my face. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck's sake, says Laurie, but it's funny too, and what can you do except laugh?
4: Um, Is is my sound okay? Yeah? so this is also towards the end of my bookkeeping the House, and, yeah, it's about a relationship. He hung by me in my kitchen, looking at me cook, watching me move the spoon like his mother. What began as a flattering request for certain dishes became a needling routine. We tried to talk it out, ease the missing with his own memories. He ironed out all his references to her, prefacing them with the words, God rest the, des- the dead in the living and the looking. I copied them, trying not to let the words divorce from their meaning while at the same time lost in the idea that the restlessly dead are looking at us through mirrors. He spoke too about the dead looking back at him. He became increasingly aware of his reflection, Our relationship moved into another phase, where he did solidly good things, and I did good things back. Sometimes when he came to me, he'd stop to get food for us, treat day for my little brother and sister. There was a place near Seven Sisters Road that did the best lahmacun for one pound. We get it with burger sauce and red cabbage, then turn up at my door with a small crate of it. My mum was always too busy to meet him, but my siblings loved him. He complained about the sugunk breeders who lived opposite me. One of them went to the school with us. This was a guy who had no game about him, but he was particularly enthusiastic about his recent strawberry banana sour strain that he described as a heavy hitter. I don't think anyone wanted a heavy hitter. I'd tell William these stories, or about the time I got hit in the face with a pipe. I pointed out the telephone boxes outside my house, where police would tap into conversations coming from the farm. I would tell him with glee, like it was something out of the TV, until suddenly I could see that his TV had gone and his head had gone and I'd said too much. I wasn't Velma Dinkley. To him, I was just a girl with a big mouth and big mouths don't pay. After time at mine, he'd smuggle me into his place as if I was a secret. Every time he apologized for the state of it. I focused on the cracks between the walls and stroked them with my fingers like I could feel them if I had enough intention. I thought, if the cracks were veins, how much would those veins jump at every sensation felt. The room was an abdomen, taking a breath each second. At times like that, I'd look at the walls, fixing my eyes back on them until the belly of them grew. When we slept together, I couldn't help but think of the oddness of it all, and another friend would flash through my head. William's mother was present in his every movement. He smelt like her too. Every time I tried to prop him up, he would retire into himself. He was never fully present in a conversation when we lay beside each other, but he was due to start a new job, checking people in at Wood Green Civic Centre. He was told to wear a good clean uniform and it was recommended that he went first to the Matalan with the shopping centre to find cheap school shirts large enough for an adult. Once he got money in, he had a month to get it all together and find a new place. He found one quickly, left his hostel neat. Later, When he returned home from work, his breast pocket would be stuffed with little pens that he collected throughout the day and gently placed on the kitchen counter every evening. They would roll off and slide under the fridge, along with warm peas and paperwork. On his way to work one day, he missed his connecting bus. The closest he got was the bus stop signs flickering by the side of his eye. The Swan Pub, Bruce Grove Station. Condensed. each stopped blurring while the same image stayed fixed in his mind, so clearly that it was like it was pinned to his forehead. His girlfriend, smacked with a spoon. When someone asked the driver where they were, he realised he had ended up in freezy water. An old couple near him were sharing Bakewell tarts, nice, boring. He watched them putting their Tupperware away before the last stop. Some people have songs stuck in their heads all day, but he had sound bites stuck in there instead, playing over and over, extracts from a conversation, a game show buzzer, a policeman's boots, the sound of rain clattering on your roof. I had brought something into his life, as much as I was body-body and comfort in his life, as much as I missed his mum too, I was also stressed.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Boyega, Frankie, T.J. Um, those were really, really good readings. Really, genuinely good. <laughs> I, I think everyone should read all of their, their work. And yeah, so this, this panel is about real, real London's, I think, which is like, which kind of like <laughs> terrified me when I got that because I like, I have no idea what the real London is, and like every kind of label I like just makes me like feel deeply uncomfortable. Like, and I was kind of trying to think about why. And I guess like neither of my parents were born in London. I don't. I feel like I've li- like a lot of Londoners. I've like lived in lots of different parts of it. I don't feel like rooted in it in a particular way. But reading your work, I feel like there's a kind of um, Londonness, like a kind of imminent Londonness. And I was kind of thinking about this quality of like. Um, the kind of like the social and the way it like works with each of you um, in, in different ways like okay I won't talk for too long but with like Frankie's novel I was thinking it's like um, it kind of made me think of like an Ida Lupino film like the, what they used to call like social issue films in that it would just it feels like I've, I've like rarely read something that like captured like an issue and like a cause in such a like powerful like novelistic way and it kind of like the place was such a big part of that. And then in Tijer's novel, it feels like it was social in such a different way. It was like about this kind of like, like, yeah, this real like embedded, like the experience of uh, a community, the real like lived experience, and of like being in that, that like social in that sense. And then in Boyega's poems, I feel like, I don't know, <laughs> there's like, he's a, the, the poetry is like, in a way, the kind of like natural. Way of doing that, where like speech and like place and all kind of like merge together in the way you, you write, um, and so I don't know. That's my, my comment. Um, do you have how do you feel about real London? Me? Yeah, TJ first. Yeah,
4: um, real London. I thought <laughs> real London's a myth. I don't even know how how London exists. <laughs> um, in that, I feel every everyone that comes to the city from outside of it, they they get their version, their their avenue in. And if you've born and raised here, you have your very own too. For me, my London is one that's cast in a lot of shrouds and and covers. Um, and I think a lot about how to like talk about the city while still concealing parts of it that are precious to me, because I think. You know, especially with gentrification, like the minute you say you love something about London, it seems to disappear. And so when we're saying real London, it, that's why I mean. Uh, London feels like this kind of, uh, uh, you know, like a phantasm or something like this.
1: Yeah, yeah, like the kind of commodification of like the authentic, the real. It's always like, yeah, yeah. yeah London does a really good line in that. Um, Frankie, what about are you?
3: How London... You
1: know, yeah, what about London? Yeah, like how you feel about it and how it... And I guess in your work, what kind of role it plays.
3: Yeah, so I think... Um,
1: Did you grow up in London? I actually don't know. No, I didn't, yeah, but no. I've, I,
3: lived, I lived in London in the late 90s for a few years. And then I lived in London for 12 years until recently. So like quite a lot of time. And I was in London the whole time I wrote this book. Um, and Because the book is set in like a fictional time, um, so I didn't include the pandemic because I'd nearly finished the book and I was like, oh, I just don't want to include it. So that didn't happen in the book. And I've given uh, the sex workers in the book have a new piece of legislation that makes it illegal to advertise sexual services, which is something that might happen. Um, and then there are some quite like far fetched storylines like the Swerf and her sex doll. And I liked situating all of those things in places that were really familiar. So... Um, yeah, like I always have my notepad, and I'll just like put in little scenes. You know, I don't know if everyone probably does that. And, and sometimes you've like put something in when you're wasted on the way home, and you think it's amazing, and it's really not. But sometimes they're like, those are the scenes that are really good, like really particular, like places that you've seen, or like. So you could have I have a character like having this meltdown in Hackney City Farm, or or like the Swerve and her sex doll having a a moment in um in the waitrose car park on Holloway Road and just like these like really like places that are really real so like grounding everything in real real locations and then obviously London has such a long sex work history like all cities do and I have a long personal history you know I worked in the late 90s in London in Soho and then again much more recently in a completely different way and completely different setup so yeah I was interested in that as well and in how London can look so different according to you know your headspace, what's going on in your life and mental health, drug use, like, all of those things. It's like it's not just that you're in a different mood; like you actually see the world differently. Like everything is really hyper bright and real, or you can't notice anything. Or so i wanted to put that in as well. So yeah, London was like this huge part of all of it. Yeah,
1: I did think it was really perfect that these this journalist lives in uh, Muswell Hill. I, thought that was, like, really <laughs>
3: yeah. I love being. I thought I was quite yeah. kind to that character, really, given that I hate yeah. her from the bottom of my soul. No, but I, but I was. I put a few mean bits in there because she fucking deserves it.
1: Where <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right.
2: again? Um, um, I think that London is just literally the best place in the world. Um, and I thought there was going to be like a
1: spontaneous round of applause <laughs> for a second. <laughs>
2: I think for me, and when I think of real London, I've always had a deep and passionate hatred of central London. So the real London for me has always existed outside of that, in places like Hackney or further into the suburbs, like where I live in Dagenham. And I think that that's what I try to capture in my work, a London which you may not see in like a early noughties, Rom com, but one that is more representative of me and the people I know and the things that I do every day and that has some characters, some hijinks, etc.
1: You don't feel like Bridget Jones's diary is an accurate portrayal of London?
2: I think the first film is great, but the London isn't one that's familiar to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is something that really annoys me in in films when they cut from one part of London to another, just Mm. this like, they're like by Tower Bridge and then they're by Buckingham Palace, like The Holiday, (laughs) that's the worst film for that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, Richard Curtis, is he even from this country? Yeah. He's
4: even from here.
1: Um, Okay, maybe this would be a good point at which to bring in the objects. Okay, um, maybe we could go in reverse order. Um, Boyega, you... You're so happy to? I. So should I say well, I just asked, um, I asked all, all of the, uh, the writers like what object was maybe important to their like writing, thinking, uh, living, process that they could share.
2: So the object I was going to share is downstairs. Um, the object so, I'm going to share instead is this lovely little drawing that a lovely man in. A pub in Liverpool gave me that I carry around because it looks really nice, and he spent a lot of time doing it, even though I just met him.
3: Nice. Is it like when a lucky I thing? Pub to carry around. It's just something
2: that, like, I always see when I uh, open my phone yeah. case, and it reminds me of just fun times. Oh, nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when did he? When did that? That was
2: um, in this summer, so like maybe around July, just went to Liverpool for a weekend. And I think Liverpool as a city is obviously very different to London. And in London, there's often, I don't know whether it's needed or not, but there's this way that we behave towards each other, which can be very guarded often to protect ourselves from real or imagined dangers and my experience in Liverpool was kind of the opposite of that where strangers would talk to me and if I was in London I might react in a certain way but in Liverpool I wouldn't react that way because that's just what they do. Mm. Nice. Frankie?
3: I forgot my object as well, I was, um, was going to bring in a leaflet that the English Collective of Prostitutes put together about Soho and the history of Soho, um, because their work was so key and um, like Soho, I think we'll probably be talking about that in a bit, but like Soho has been the site of some really horrific um, abuse by the police, like really frightened, that I talked about in that first reading. Um, so I was trying to think what, like, fishnet tights, I guess, could be the current object. I like would think in the book I write a lot about sex workers stepping in and out of persona and almost like Laurie's character sees her work persona, Lily, as just like this completely separate person, which is how I am a lot. So I guess this is a little nod to like blurring the categories because I have until recently kept that world so separate, like never ever would have thought of sitting and talking about being a sex worker. You know, and I've been doing sex work for like 25 years on and off. So, um, yeah, I guess that, and that felt like a big theme in the book, that all of the characters, in a way, were quite split off from themselves in some way or other. So, that can be my object in tights. <laughs> hey. Tija? Um, I've got mine, but I al-
4: almost always have it at flight, when I'm writing, when I'm doing like, some type of performance. It's a grounding tool that the NHS gave me, so... Recommended if you have complex PTSD to always carry something on you that re-centers you back into a physical, touchable item, and uh, I find it really handy. It also, as we were saying backstage, reminds me of those like spaghetti mazes that you get in a waiting room, and that has uh, a good nostalgia for me.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: In like GP surgeries, in the, the ones where you put the coloured blocks in different... Yeah, That's GP surgeries, prisons. Yeah. Yeah. I realised I I don't I don't really have one, except, maybe that I carry like an inhaler with me. Does that count? Though I like I never really use it. Just like carry it with me, um, because I did have asthma as a child, and then I had like a relapse of it, which I think was like anxiety related, mm-hmm. like a few years ago. But it's still there, just in case. Uh, Anyway, Uh, moving on. Um, Wait, let me see. I do have some questions, but maybe it would be nice to um, see if the audience has any questions. And yeah, just to give time for for opening up this, this conversation. Hey. Mike? Mike, Mike? Go Sorry, should I give this mic? Yeah, 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 I'll do
5: it. I can do it. Jinhao? Thank you. Hi, um, thank you for your readings, and I've noted. Oh. <clears throat> thank you for your readings, and. Um, I have noticed there's a common theme the, uh, between the pieces that you have read. Uh, it's about like communities, like what does the community mean to you guys because you're coming from a different backgrounds. And I have a second question. I'm just going to be cheeky. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm just going to be cheeky asking a second question. is like um, there's always a presence of police uh, in the readings that you have chosen as well. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering when you were writing what that kind of... The role of police you know how Met police had you know recently (laughs) done something you know and just like that yeah two questions uh what does community means to you and um what's that role of police hovering in your mind when you're writing
4: um it's really interesting that you've picked up that we all like hinted at police in our our readings and uh i feel like for me when i write about london um, I feel being, being a Londoner and, and being a Londoner who's viewed as dodgy um, definitely was and uh, that was my upbringing, you know. Um, it definitely means that that London met <laughs> their problem <laughs> and a uh, problem in Tottenham, you know, there's a long, long history of police brutality in Tottenham and especially against, against the black British communities. And I think you, know, you cannot write about the place without looking at the lineage of, of that and, uh, and resistance amongst communities. And so then when you ask about what community means to me as a writer, um, for me it's communities that resist against uh, narratives that are being put upon them by people who do not understand them, and communities that come together to, to make things good and enjoyable and share joy.
3: Next step. yeah, good for
1: it. Um,
3: Frankie, yeah, so a lot. I set a lot of my book in Soho, where um, obviously, there's a like a long like 200 year history of sex work in Soho, and in that time, um, there have been many attempts to get sex workers out. I feel like recently it really has reached a point where that sex work in Soho is almost gone, but the raids that I talked about in that, um. In my reading, really happened. Um, 250 police in riot gear with dogs raided these walk up flats um, in the name of trafficking. No trafficking victims were found. Um, several women were deported. Um, you know, the violence of it. And they did invite along media who were allowed to take pictures of women on the street in their underwear with their faces barely blurred out. It was disgusting. And it was like very much this land grab, you know, to get all this valuable real estate. Cleaned up of sex workers, and then there was another lot of raids in Chinatown, next door to Soho, um, in 2016. Very similar, like carried out in the name of trafficking, led to a lot of deportations. Um, so yeah, fault. it's a it's a constant battle. I mean, women are raided all the time in their flats. It's I don't know. People know what the law is. It's legal to buy and sell sex in the UK but it's not legal to share a flat with someone for safety, so that's what almost all of us do. Um, so yeah, that, it felt really important to talk about that. And then also a lot of the book is about yeah, resistance to that, so I've set um, a large part of the book in a church, in a church occupation, which really happened in the 70s in France, um, sex workers protesting b- police brutality like occupied a church for weeks, and then in the 80s in London, the English collective of prostitutes took over a church in Kings Cross for the same reason for ten days, and it's such a just iconic image of all of them in there. I mean, in neither case has the battle been won, but you know it's a major and ongoing, ongoing battle. That unfortunately a lot of um, people who should be on side, you know, there's a lot of labor women who are actually in the cabinet who are like very supportive of bringing in more levels of criminalization more contact with the police and it's something that like no sex worker no sex worker organization on the planet wants so i felt really important to talk about that as much as possible in the book yeah
2: i think for me growing up in london i or my older brother were warned of the police at a very young age and it was made clear to us that there was a hyper-visibility that we had to the police and so in my writing I'm always trying to navigate the tensions between living and enjoying yourself and the dangers or the limitations of life and those are often represented by the police because they are a danger. And I think that leads into community because living in a city and a country where often you aren't accepted either by government, police or just the general public, I think community is being able to build something for yourself and that is evident in places such as Hackney, Peckham, Tottenham, which are at risk and which are at constant risk from police, from gentrification. And so, as TJ was saying, when writing about London, I couldn't write a London that didn't include that attempt to build community and that present threat that the police is and are.
1: Just i was just remembering. Um, I don't know if you noticed this a couple of, a few weekends ago in um, Downhills Park. They had a community fun day, and I saw the posters written. I was like, "Oh, that looks fun." And then I like looked closer, and it was just like loads of police horses, loads of policemen, and it was like organized by the like, like by, by the Met. Mm. Like, and I was just like, "This is complete." Yeah, um, I don't really have any like particularly um... to th- thoughts about that, other than it's completely great in like the shadow of. Broadwater Farm to do that—it's like it's just like whitewash <laughs> that history. Um, but yeah, sorry. Other question. Um, we don't. We have time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like one more. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Thank you. Um, so obviously the title was real London's. Um, given that, uh, even though. It, you know, publishing is a very London-centric industry. The sort of London that it centres often isn't the Londons that you're portraying in, in your works. Um, I guess separate to kind of like writing, I suppose it's kind of like the publishing aspect or the sort of like distribution aspect. Have you found that there's been a conflict
0: between portraying what um, people think is real or should be real and what is truthful? to you in terms of storytelling or creation?
4: Um, so um, if if we've found a conflict between what we perceive as our Real London and what the publishing industry and general market around books see as Real London, um, for me I think that I'm lucky with the publisher that I'm with, I'm with And Other Stories, and they publish work that's um, from writers from all different backgrounds um, and often literature and translation. So I think that they felt more scope to arrive with a story that featured other languages and featured a lot of different communities, not just one community. Some of the publishers who I spoke to felt that if I was to write about North London, I only should write about Turkish people in North London and you know, like, I, they had to have only Turkish friends and things like this to keep the story um, neat. And there were a lot of like strange phrasings and terms that fortunately I have email receipts to back up and, and, and we'll revisit. <laughs> um, I, think, I think we have to be mindful of some of the language in the industry around the oversaturation of London literature. You know, when people are like, oh, we can't have another London poem, another London novel, another album from a Londoner. It's, it, for me, feels quite a limited point of view because there's a reason why people move to London, because we feel safer amongst our communities and we feel safe in the bubbles that we create for ourselves. And th- while they exist all across the UK, there's definitely some that are more established here. And I think... It, it, we're only just scratching the surface of getting these stories published, as you have so rightly said.
1: A great answer.
3: Thank you,
1: um, Frankie.
3: Um, well, yeah, I do. I do think that some of the um, there were some messages in that book that would have been quite unpalatable, I think, to a mainstream publisher. I can only. I was trying really hard not to do this, but I'm going to be bitchy about another book. (laughs) I won't name the book, but a book came out a few months before mine, which um, the writer got huge advance, um, and it had this massive advertising problem. The book is about sex work in Soho, it's about um, the protest movement, but it is watered down to this point that despite a book being about the protest movement, this is written by someone who's not a sex worker, had not even contacted anyone involved in those movements, um, is so dumbed down, like the word decriminalisation isn't mentioned once, the police are given a very easy time. You know, this person skimmed a 50 grand advance off the back of generations of unpaid labour by sex workers, then advertised the book after the pandemic, when so many of us lost our Soho working places, with posters in Soho saying, welcome back to Soho. And the sight of this Oxbridge graduate posing in front of the posters was... So I do think if you want that sort of mainstream, but you probably do have to dumb down some of the like, you know, there's there's a lot of swarfs working in media, and I know the Guardian has never published a review of a book by a sex worker. They, my friend's book, Revolting Prostitutes, which was you know groundbreaking, they refused to cover. So I think, um, yeah, you you have to kind of choose of like being feeling like you're keeping integrity to the message that you want. Or, or maybe having a more of a commercial success. I know that sounds like really sour grapes. <laughs> maybe it is, but like, I feel like it needs saying. So yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not sour grapes at all. I don't think. Yeah. Well, have you had like some similar experiences?
2: Like I think poetry is different because very few people care. So it's <laughs> <laughs> it's less common that you would have a publisher trying to exert that kind of pressure. But I think that what we have seen very recently is that the bigger poetry presses are like publishing black British people for the first time, which is crazy. And a lot of those people tend to be from London. And so I think that that can only be a positive thing. At the same time, a risk that comes with more exposure is kind of being boxed in. And like you're talking about neatness, and there is often like a lens of like exoticization that happens when we talk about certain parts, when certain people talk about certain parts of London, um, which is garbage. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, great. Yeah, basically. <laughs> do you think? Because we've got readings. Uh, yeah, I think. I think we. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, everyone. But there'll be signings at the end where you can buy, buy their books and maybe ask a cheeky question. Um,
4: I bought my special pen. It's
1: blue. Special pen. It's exciting. Blue. Yeah. Ah, Not tr- interesting. What, what color pens do you use, Wege, Frankie? Just final, final last question. Do you write in pen, colour pen?
3: What, no, okay, forget it. This is, this is, is a <laughs> stupid question. I was, so I was so just mad. like, no, I. <laughs> so kind of I was
1: just. Do you do you write in a, a blue pen? In
3: Green? pen, no, 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 never. No, I'm too lazy to like... Yeah.
2: Diego, should we like? Just a standard black pen. A black um, pen. Yeah. A Bic,
1: maybe. No, yeah,
2: not me.
3: <laughs>
1: cool. Um, the
3: Argos pen. Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah. Go on. yeah.
1: Yeah, that was a really great um, discussion. Thank you um, for your questions, and thank you for the way you talked so eloquently. And yeah, I feel like that narr- the thing that came through with like, resisting narratives was really powerful. And on that note, I'm uh, gonna hear a shorter reading now from each of the writers, starting with T.J., then Frankie, and then Viega.
4: Okay. Um, so I thought I would read you a poem at the beginning of the book. It's the last time we see one of the characters for a short while, and it's following a bunch of 16-year-olds have just broken into, well, they've snuck into a club, they haven't broken in, but they got in through the fire exit, and stuff happens. The night the bouncer was attacked, club at 16, Gemmela's bitten nails, Chicken into thumb-sized pieces. Gemula eating with her eyes closed, cheeks fatter than before. Little groups, shivering tables, folding money, recounting, fragmented cycles, making sense. It was this, it was this, and it was this too. Eavesdrop so much you think you saw it. Dancing during knives. You dropped so good you tell it better yourself. Eyes closed in McDonald's. Tired chicken face. We tell it, so it's yours. And it's yours now. And it's yours now.
3: Okay, so this, um, this reading comes from the first chapter of a character called Freya. So she's in her first ever escort booking. And yeah, this is the, I'm gonna start just in the middle of the booking. So. Back in the bedroom, the man is stripped with his boxer shorts. He puts his arm around her and squeezes her ass, makes an approving, mmm. she takes off her dress. Leave those on, he says, twinging her suspenders, so she does. She catches sight of herself in the mirror when he goes down on her. His head is buried between her legs and her thighs look huge and pale, the black line of the suspenders digging into her flesh. The room is wallpapered with peach-coloured shells on a pale green background. The bedside lamp is aluminium and curves around to shine onto the headboard. She hopes her pussy tastes okay. She puts the condom on him the wrong way round, so that it unrolls from the inside. I have done this before, she jokes and she tries again. Then she wishes she hadn't said anything. He's probably disappointed at how unprofessional she is. When the condom's on, she gives him what's undoubtedly a very second-rate blowjob. Once he's inside her, he takes ages to come. There's abstract art on the wall, a square, a splodge, a splatter. He's still going. She should have used more lube. Later, she says goodbye, walks back down the hallway, through the lobby, and out into the big, wide world, the world in which she's now a whore. Can people tell? She opens her bag and touches the white envelope. So much money, she texts Charlie. I did it, I made all this cash, and it was easy as fuck. Skipping a bit. Um, Later, they head to the park, with their breath billowing out in front of them, hoods pulled up and hands in pockets. There's no one about, but they don't use the light of their phones, finding their way with the city glow and the shreds of moonlight across open space. Feet damp in the wet grass. The park feels different at night, filled with currents too subtle to pick up on during the day, but that quiver luminous in the darkness. Freya takes Charlie by the hand and pulls them under some trees, pushing back branches, stomping across muddy ground, until they reach a space where the sky opens out and there's room to sit. Silence settles around them. She pushes candles into the ground in a circle, clearing earth with her fingers, soft mud under her nails the smell of life and death, earth, mud, soil, dirt, such different words, only the first attribute to matter that's a whole ecosystem in the palm of your hand. Soil, soiled, dirt, dirty. Freya kneels, she sees crackling lines of light that mesh around them, the candle flames tipped in lightning. Above them, the sky is dark, but somewhere beyond their vision are stars. Heat channels through from the earth to the sky. Her body disintegrates.
2: I'm going to read two shortish poems. The first is called In My Country, and has a reference to a card game in which the queen is referred to as a slag in my country we can be a bit boisterous says who loud sure as the back of a double decker it's just our culture a few things to know bend your knees when you greet don't ask too many questions it's left of the dealer twos on jacks no jacks on twos the queen's a slag i don't make the rules i just want to win it's not that deep A man talks about fucking, another man talks about mothers. It's not a party until they're arguing about church and we're cooking our meat over burning documents. See, I know a guy, he knows a guy, can get you whatever. A clean cup of piss, mangoes in November, we got you. Just need you to pledge allegiance to the singlet, to the oversized luggage. This poem's called A Reminder to Mind Your Own. This table you're shaking, this suede loafer you're stepping on, this sofa arm you sit on, in this shindig we in, every man deep, bottles to hand, with the film over the carpet, the smell of us, the DJ swimming in the wet of us, our arms, a ceiling fan, a rescue ship, this worrying base, plenty we sorry not sorry for, this place you pre. remember, you don't have rights here, we don't know you from nowhere, you may know not what you do, you need to know here. Thank you, let's have one more round of applause, because why not, it's brilliant reading. <laughs>